Okay. So we are doing now Monday's portion of Parsha Tzav, and as we had in last week in Vayikra and continuing in Tzav, a lot of details of the sacrifices, the offerings, the karbanos, which of course the overarching purpose of them all, like the root word of karban, karov, the karev, was to draw close to God, to ultimately sacrifice our animal soul, sacrifice the, the, the physicality, so to speak, or the coarseness of our bodies, and to really become close to God through this act. So, we're in chapter 6, verse 12. God spoke to Moshe saying, This is the offering of Aaron and his son, which each shall offer to God on the day he is inaugurated, a tenth of an ephah fine flour as a meal offering, continually, half it in the morning and half of it in the afternoon. So this verse is sort of confusing because on one hand it says you're supposed to offer it when you're inaugurated, and on one hand it says you're supposed to offer it continually. So as it clarifies that we're actually talking about two different types of flower offerings. For everyone, like the common priest, so to speak, every time on the day of inauguration, when they're initiated to the service, they offer this special meal offering, a tenth of the ephah flower. But the high priest brings it every day. And this is something that he does eternally, as we see from another verse, that we're told that this is an eternal decree for the high priest to offer this, as we're saying actually, twice daily, half of this amount in the morning, and half in the afternoon. It should be made on a pan with oil, scalded till you bring it, repeated baking, a meal offering of crumbs. You shall offer it as a satisfying aroma to God. And now we're being told it's recipe. We start by saying it's scalded, and Rashi explains it's scalded in boiling water. And then repeated bakings, it bakes many bakings because first it's scalded, then it's baked, and then it's fried in the pan. It says a meal offering of crumbs, which means that it requires crumbling, but not actual crumbling, as we learned previously in last week's Torah portion. We learned that these flour offerings, some of them had to be crumbled, most of them had to be crumbled actually, because they had to be scooped up with three fingers. But this offering is not scooped up with three fingers, because the scooping up with three fingers is for the flower offerings, where you take that portion, the three fingers worth, offer that to God, and the rest is eaten by the priest. But when a priest offers a flower offering, as this one, then the whole thing is burnt to God. So there's no scooping, because everything's burnt. So therefore, since there's no scooping, we don't need to be really crumbled enough to scoop it. So what do we mean by crumbling here? It's folded. First, it's folded in two, and then again, it's folded into four, vertically and horizontally, but not literally crumbled because the entire offering is then going to be placed on the altar and burnt up to God. The priest from among his sons who is anointed in his place shall perform it, meaning the priest that is going to be the high priest after him. It is an eternal decree for God. It shall be caused to go up and smoke in its entirety. So the one who's in the stead of the high priest, he also offers us every day, twice a day. And as we said before, it goes up and smoke entirely. No scooping here because no remainders are eaten because whenever a priest offers it, it's burnt completely to God. Every meal offering of a priest is to be an entirety. It shall not be eaten. As we said, every meal offering of a priest, now here we're adding something because we just already said this, so Rashi says, well, this means voluntary offerings, meaning because we just discussed an obligatory offering where we understood it. We said it went entirely to God. But even a voluntary offering, if a priest decides to offer a meal offering to God, also there, all of it 
is offered to God, and none of it is given to the priest. God spoke to Moses saying, now we're going to discuss a different offering. Speak to Aaron and his son saying, this is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the Eulah offering is slaughtered, the Eulah again is the offering that's completely burnt to God, shall the sin offering be slaughtered before God, it is most holy. The priest who makes it into a sin offering may eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the courtyard of the Ohomoi, the tent of meeting. So whoever offers it, whoever it becomes a sin offering through him, he eats it. But that doesn't mean that actually this one priest gets the entire portion of the animal. In other words, in such an offering like a sin offering, part goes to God, part goes to the priest. Now, for one priest to receive the entirety of it, that doesn't seem to make sense, especially because we know it discusses in another verse how the priests of that division divide it. So what it means is, who makes it a sin offering may eat it, whoever could potentially have made it a sin offering, meaning anyone who is impure at the time of the offering, at the time when the blood was sprinkled, he cannot take part in it because he could not have made it a sin offering. But all the rest of the priests from that watch, as we'll learn later, all the West, rest of the priests of that shift, so to speak, divided among themselves, as we see later, it says that every male among the priests can eat it. Whatever touches its flesh shall become holy, and if there will have been sprinkled from its blood on the garment, that on which it will be sprinkled, you should launder in a holy place. So we're being told here two rules. The first rule we're saying, if there's any food, Rashi explains, that was touched and absorbed of, of, so to speak, as we would call it, the energy of this offering, shall become holy means it becomes like the offering. So if the sin offering became invalid for some reason, then that food that was touched by it and absorbed by it also is invalid. You can't eat it because the offering that is now connected to you can't eat. If the sin offering is valid, then this additional food that touched it is he in with all the stringencies of the sin offering? So if you can only eat the sin offering in a certain place in the courtyard, that's the only place you can eat your potato or tomato or pickle or whatever else got touched and absorbed by the energy of that offering. That was the first half of the verse. And then we speak about the sprinkling of the blood, which means if, not deliberately, of course, it wasn't that the service is to sprinkle blood on your clothing, but if blood from the offering got sprinkled on a garment, then you can't just, take it outside to your, to your home and wash it because the blood is the blood of the offering, so you can't take it out of the temple. So therefore, you have to, offer, you have to wash it in the area of the temple. Well, she focuses on the grammar here and explains this. Hebrew phrase, that it will be sprinkled. Now, next verse, another interesting law. makes sense detail. An earthenware vessel in which it was cooked must be broken, but if it was cooked in a copper vessel, it should be scoured and rinsed in water. Now, why are we saying that if we, whatever we cook the sin offering in, if it's earthenware, if it's pottery, it has to be broken? The Rashi explains that if you would take the meat, again, this is not God's portion. God's portion gets burnt to the altar. This is a human portion. You know, people don't eat it raw, obviously. They're going to cook it. So if you cooked it in a pottery vessel, the pottery is going to absorb the juices of the meat. Now, the juices of that meat, once the time of eating the offering expires, in other words, every offering has a certain period of time that Torah says you can eat it, after which it's forbidden to eat or derive any benefit from it. 
So the juices that are absorbed by the earthenware vessel are going to become forbidden because they're absorbed now into the vessel, so they're not going to be eaten. You can't clean them out, so what do we do with it? So we actually have to shatter the vessel to make sure we don't use it again, and then those juices could, so to speak, go into something else. But if it's copper, then we know you can clean it out, so therefore you can. So it should be scoured, as Rashi explains, this, this word that refers to, to cleansing, actually it refers to cosmetics. So when we're scouring it and rinsing it, we're expelling the juices that were absorbed. But by earthenware, you can't. So that's why you have to break it. But by, pot, by copper, you can. And that's why if you scour it well and rinse it well, you can then use it again because you got rid of those juices. Every male among the priests may eat it. It is most holy. So this is the verse we referred to before when we said that previously in... Uh, one of the first verses in this section, right? Verse 19 seemed to imply that the priest that offered it, he got it all. But we said that can't be, we said there, because of this verse, verse 22, that's saying every male could eat it. Which is why we learned there that it meant one who was fit to offer it. So Rashi references that again and explains that concept. And any sin offering from which some blood has been brought to the tent of meeting, to the homo aid, to effect atonement within the holy, in the Kaidish, shall not be eaten, it shall be burnt in fire. So what we're talking here is actually about uh, offering that something wrong was done. And here we're talking about a sin offering that was not meant to come inside because the blood, the blood of a sin offering of a regular person is sprinkled on the outside altar, not the inside altar. So if someone took that animal or that blood, you don't have to take the animal, just take the blood, and you sprinkled it, you went inside the sanctuary to sprinkle it on the inner altar, the whole offering became invalid. And then Rashi says that it says, and all sin offerings also include other concepts that includes any other offerings that, again, if they're supposed to be offered on the outside altar and they were brought their blood to the inside altar, and the whole offering is invalid. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. Now we're talking about a different offering. We started talking about the flower offering. Then we spoke about the sin offering. And now we're talking about the guilt offering. So what does this phrase, it is most holy, refer to? So Rashi says, it is offered, but its substitute is not offered. What Rashi is referring to there is that you're not allowed to substitute one animal for another animal once the animals have been designated for an offering. In other words, if you took animal, we'll call it number one, and you said, oh, this is a perfect animal, it has no blemishes, it's a beautiful animal, it's going to be my sin offering. And then you said, mm, you know, I think I like animal two better. It looks even more beautiful. So I want animal two as my sin offering. Well, you can't do that. What you actually created now is instead of offering one animal, you have to offer two. Because both animals are now offered on the altar. Now that's the rule if it's an oila, when it's completely burnt, if it's a peace offering where God gets a portion, the priest gets a portion, and the owner gets a portion. But there are some offerings that, again, you can't make a substitution, but we don't offer them both on the altar. So by the verse saying it is most holy, it's saying you can't 
have a substitute offered. So what do you do? So you picked animal number one for your guilt offering, and then you found another animal that you thought was even more beautiful, more special for whatever reason. You decided this should be offered. Well, now you messed up, because, and we don't even offer both. So what do you do? So the original one gets offered. What happens to the replacement, the substitute? The substitute does not get offered, but it does have a holiness here. You can't just slaughter it. You can't use it for work. You designate it as an offering. So what do you do? Well, basically, they just allow it to graze. They're not allowed to make it work at all because it's the holiness of an offering, and they're not allowed to slaughter it because holiness is an offering. But it just grazes, enjoys life, until it's also blemish. Well, once it has a blemish, it's invalidated for an offering, and then the owner is allowed to sell it. And the money received from the sale absorbs the sanctity that that animal had. And with that money, you purchase voluntary offerings that you then offer. So this animal number one, the one you designated, went on the altar. Animal number two has sanctity, is grazing, enjoying life, develops a blemish eventually, gets sold by the transaction of the sale. The sanctity leaves that animal and that becomes a common animal. It's probably put back to work. And the money has sanctity. The money is used to purchase other animals, which then are offered to God as voluntary offerings. That is the point of this phrase. It is most holy. It's offered. You can't offer its substitute. So this is what we do as a substitute. In the place where they slaughter the Ola offering, the offering is completely burnt up, so they slaughter the guilt offering. And he shall throw his blood upon the altar all around. Rashi says this verse is actually including many different slaughtering. And because we have a guilt offering, it could be a guilt offering brought by an individual. It could be a guilt offering brought by the public. But what are we learning here? Why are we saying the place where they offer the Ola offering, that's where we offer the guilt offering? Well, what, what, why make that comparison? The Rashi is saying, well, we know where one offers a regular Ola offering, a personal Ola offering, on the northern side of the area of the temple courtyard. But we didn't know about a variant Ola offering. When a Ola offering is offered for the entire people, so based on this comparison, we're actually learning out about the Ola offering itself, that communal Ola offering, that communal offering that's completely burned, but also it is offered, is slaughtered on the northern side, which is where the more holy animals, where the more holy offerings were offered. And he shall offer all of its fat, the fat tail, and the fat that covers the innards. Now, in... Previously, when we just discussed the sin offering, we didn't enumerate the parts because they didn't have to be enumerated because we learned about them previously. But by this sin offering, sorry, but by this guilt offering, we didn't say before the part. So therefore, now we're stating them explicitly. In other words, the sin offering, we spoke about in the previous Torah portion, so we already knew the part. So that's why the Chumash didn't write it. But this, we don't know the part. So the Chumash has to write it. And it enumerates specifically this fat tail because the guilt offering is always offered by a ram or a sheep. And the ram and the sheep is basically the same animal. It's just difference in age. Up to a year is a sheep. From a year and 31 days up to two years is a ram. So that animal, the ram sheep, has this fat tail among its parts. 
All the other animals, like a goat, let's say a goat has a tail, but we don't offer it. But the ram, sheep, we do. And the two kidneys and the fat that covers them, which is on the flanks, and he shall move the diaphragm as well as the liver as well as the kidneys. The priest shall cause them to go up and smoke on the altar, a fire offering to God. It is a guilt offering. So why again are we repeating this obvious? It is a guilt offering. So it is meaning it, it remains a guilt offering until the name is disconnected from it. So when would a name get disconnected from the offering? So Rasha gives you two situations. If someone designated animals a guilt offering and then die, or someone designated animals a guilt offering and then received atonement through another animal. So if it died, that's the law, that's the accepted law, that if someone offered something as a guilt offering, he designated as a guilt offering, but he died, then we no longer offer this guilt offering. In terms of the second situation, what, what would happen is, let's say you designate again your animal number as a guilt offering, but then it got lost. Like you couldn't find it. You know, in your herds, you didn't mark it properly or you did mark it and you're looking, you're looking, you're looking, you can't find this animal. You don't know what to do because you, you have to offer this guilt offering. Guilt offering is not, you know, it's not voluntary and you designate an animal you need to offer. So the law is offer a different one. Now, then, lo and behold, the original one gets fined. It emerges from the herd. You find it. So in either case, in either situation, if someone had designated the animal as a guilt offering and then died, in which case we no longer offer it, or if someone had designated the animal but then it got lost, misplaced in his herd, wandered away to a neighbor's pasture, he offered a different animal and then it emerged, what do we do with this animal? What Rashi says is that basically this is, this is the same law I mentioned before in a different situation. We can't just offer it because we don't offer an extra guilt offering, as we said. We can't just say, oh, hey, it's, it's just um, not sacred anymore because it is. It was designated as an offering. So same situation as before. We set it out to pasture. It gets to graze until it develops a blemish. Once it develops a blemish, then it's disqualified for being an offering. Then we could sell it, and the proceeds are used to purchase Ola offerings. As Rashi says, that these Ola offerings are called like the dessert of the altar. In other words, something to satiate the altar, extra offering. So what we're learning here, so beyond all this, Rashi goes on to explain. Why does it say it is a guilt offering? So this animal is never going to be a guilt offering, right? Because as we explained in, in the two various situations, it's not going to be offered as a guilt offering, but it remains in the state, in the spiritual category of a guilt offering. And that's why it cannot just be offered as a different type of offering. You can't say, okay, well, I sanctified it. I no longer can use it as a guilt offering, so I'm going to just make it a voluntary Ola offering. I'm going to burn it up to God. No. What you have to do is take it out of its state of being a guilt offering by putting it out to pasture. And then when it's pasture, as we explained, you have the blemish, and then you sell it, and then you take the money, and then you buy those additional Ola offerings for the altar. But let's say a person didn't do the procedure correctly. He set it out to pasture, 
And then, instead of waiting for it to develop a blemish, he just says, oh, this is so silly. I'm supposed to wait for it to develop a blemish. Then sell. Then take the money. Then buy animals. But then I'm going to offer as an Allah offering. Let me just offer this one as an Allah offering. Is he allowed to? Well, he's not doing the right process. But he is because once the animal is set out to graze, it is removed from the state of being a guilt offering. So it is a guilt offering. As long as the name guilt offering is on it, you're stuck. It can only be used as a guilt offering. But once it's removed from the status of guilt offering, because in this complicated situation, it got put out the pasture, it, it still is sanctified. You can't use it for work. You can't just slaughter it. You're supposed to wait for a blemish and then take the money and then buy an animal and then offer it up to God. But if the owner, maybe he was a little ignorant, he didn't know all the laws, and he put it out the pasture and then he said, oh, why don't I put it out the pasture? Let me offer it to God as a burnt offering, as an Ola. He's allowed to do it because it no longer has the status, the title, so to speak, of guilt offering. So it's still kosher. Every male among the priests may eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. When it says it is most holy, it's actually telling us something a little bit complicated that Rashi says this is learnt out in Torah's Kohanim, which Torah's Kohanim explains that there's really two parts to this phrase. It is and then most holy. So most holy means that the law, which restricts everyone but the male priest from eating the offering, applies here to peace offerings that are brought on behalf of the public. It is most holy. It is, says that, but this doesn't apply to all of them because there are two types that are actually exempt from that. A Thanksgiving offering, if you're thanking God for getting out of prison or traveling the ocean or something along those lines, and the ram bought by the Nazir at the end when he finishes his time of being a Nazir. So it is only it and not the Thanksgiving offering and not the Nazar's offering, most holy for the rest of this broad category that only the male priest can eat them. Like the sin offering is the guilt offering. They have the same law. It shall belong to the priest who performs its atonement service. They have the same law means specifically what we're going to talk about because obviously... There's many different laws between a sin offering and a guilt offering, as we have already mentioned a few today. But in this specific area, they have the same law. What's the same law? That whoever could have performed the service of offering that animal takes share in the meat, in the hides, and whatever the priest received. So there's three categories of priests that would not be allowed to take part in it. One is a person who was impure. He did what was needed for his purification, including going to mikvah. But he has to wait until sundown. And only once sundown comes is he considered pure. So if on that day, when he already even, he did all the steps of purification, he already went to mikvah, he's just waiting for sundown. If his animal is now being divided, he doesn't get a portion because he couldn't offer it at this point. Another category, someone who's lacking atonement, means that some types of impurity you have to offer offering to complete the purification process. So here it's sort of opposite. The person already immersed in the mikvah and the sunset, but he didn't offer the offerings, his own personal offerings for atonement. So until he offers his offering for atonement, he cannot serve in the temple and he can't have portion of the offering. Or a mourner on the day of the death of a relative 
is disqualified from serving the temple and from partaking in the offering. And the priest who offers a person's Ola offering, the high of the Ola offering that he offered to the priest, it shall be his. Now here again, Rashi says we have the same exclusion. All the three we said before, the person who's waiting for immersion, the person who's waiting to offer his own personal offering of atonement, and the mourner on the death of the day of the death of his relatives, all three of those categories also don't have a portion in the skin. Any meal offering that is baked in the oven and any that is made in a deep pan or in a shallow pan that belongs to the priest who offers it, it shall be his. So based on this verse, Roger says, it sounds like that priest gets to eat it all. But we know that's not true. As the next verse says, it belongs to all of Aaron's sons. So based on that next verse, you think all the priests divided. Based on our verse, you think all of the priests that offered it gets it. So what's the point of these two seemingly opposing verses? You put the two together to understand that the priest who offered it, he, that's just him alone, because obviously the next verse says it belongs to all of them there. So the whole extended family of that priest on the day that it was offered, they get to divide it. In other words, the priests were divided, all the priests, the entire section of the tribe. Of course, the priests were a section of the tribe of Levites, but the section of the tribe of Levites that were priests, all the descendants of Aaron, they became divided into 24 groups. 24 watches. Then these were each divided into six family groups. They were called the extended families. And each of the 24 groups officiated in the temple for one week, twice, or depending on the year, sometimes three times a year. You have your father's house, your watch, Sorry, not your father's house. Your watch, again, we took all of the priests and they were divided into 24 watches, within which they were divided into six families, extended families. So your watch got to serve two or maybe three times a week in the temple. That's it. The whole year, besides in the holidays when everyone, all the priests got to share, you were not in the temple. Even then, when you had that week, each family officiated one weekday. Remember, because there are six families within the watch. And within that family, then they divided the jobs by lots, and you, you merited that you won a lot and got a job. You could spend an entire year and never serve at all because you never won the lot. We're not the high primitive common priest. If you never won the lot, if you never merited with a lot, you never get to serve. On Shabbos, the entire watch, meaning all six family groups, were able to participate in the lottery. And again, during the festival, all priests were eligible for the lottery. So we're saying here that the priest who offered that meal offering, it belonged to his family. Again, so we're not talking about the entire watch, 124th of all priests. We're talking about one-sixth of that 124th, his family. So just to make this practical or to bring it down to numbers, you only got to serve during your watch two or three weeks a year. 
During those two or three weeks, you only got to serve one day because there were six groups, six families, subdivisions of that watch. So let's say your, your family got it on Sunday. You got to serve on Sunday. This whole week is your watch. But Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it's different families, not your family, so you can't even serve. But then Shabbos, everyone in the entire watch is allowed to participate in the lottery to maybe merit to win a service on Shabbos. And on Sunday, when it was your family's term within that watch, those two or three Sundays of the entire year, it, again, not necessarily did you serve. Then again, it was a lot, and whoever merited with a lot got to serve, which is why the day that a priest got to do any of these jobs was his personal holiday. Because look how rare it was for any of the priests to be able to do any of these offerings. It was very, very special. So going back to the point we're making in this Rashi, the priest that offered the flower offering, the meal offering, his entire family, that one-sixth of the watch, divides the meal offering among themselves. And any meal offering that is mixed with oil or that is dry is to belong to all of Aaron's sons, every man alike. So mixed with oil, Rashi says, refers to the voluntary meal offering, meaning someone just decided they want to bring a gift to God. And the one that's dry is the meal offering of a sinner or the meal offering of, it's called jealousy, by a woman who suspects of adultery because those two didn't, were not adorned, so to speak, not made more beautiful by having the oil on them. 